0: So take your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm actually going to go back and we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 because it really sets the stage for Christ telling us how to pray because he tells us first how not to, and then he says, now pray in this way. This is how I'm going to show you to pray. So beginning in verse 5, it says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, for your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So what is he saying? What are his prerequisites for prayer? Well, first of all, he says, don't be a hypocrite. And literally, that means don't be a play actor. Now, what was he? He's talking about the Pharisees who loved to pray on the street corners. Why? They wanted to be well thought of. It mattered to them what others thought of them, much more so than what the Lord thought. In fact, to be a hypocrite means that our prayers are indicative of the fact that if you only pray in public you're probably not praying privately. That's what a hypocrite would do. A hypocrite would only pray in public. So if you're praying in public to be seen by men, it's more than likely you're not spending time praying in secret because anyone who prays privately will not boast publicly. And if you don't pray in secret, but only in front of others, you don't love Christ supremely. You know, the greatest command is for our greatest good, to love the Lord with all of our being, because it is only in loving him that way, with our entire being, that we experience wholeness and healing and purpose. It's only found in absolute surrender and abandonment to the Lord by choosing to set our affections upon him. So, what we do in secret reveals what we adore the most. And... Tim Keller said in a message on adoration, how would be thy name, what you adore most will cause you to pray only when that thing is at stake. The consistency of your prayer life will tell you who your God is. When we're in a crisis, we have a bad health diagnosis. We have a strange relationship. Whatever the crisis we fear we're going to be passed over for a promotion. Whatever our crisis, whatever is most valuable to us, if that thing is threatened, what do we do? Well, we get people to pray for us, right? And we start praying and we get more diligent about it. But once it's passed, we have a tendency to kind of slide back into coasting once again. And that shows us, if that is indicative of our prayer life, that that thing, whatever it was, that became a crisis for us, when it was at stake, we began to pray, that is more important to us than Christ. We actually adore that thing or that person more than we adore Christ. If we are faithfully praying and spending time with him, it's because we love him. It's because we desire to be with him. And it should be out of that desire to spend time in his presence and with a sense of expectation that he is going to answer our prayers. Because what does it tell us? Your father who is in secret, he is there waiting for us. He is waiting to meet with us, to reveal himself to us, to speak to us primarily through his word, but also through promptings in our inner man. What do you think you must have? You know, sometimes our limited perspective is revealed in the way we respond or react when that thing is threatened. I love staying with our grandchildren. I absolutely adore them, every one of them. I could literally eat them with a spoon. You know, I loved my children, but I could, oh my goodness, I could just eat up my grandbabies. I just think they're perfect in every single way. I am just amazed at them. Well, I was supposed to keep Bethany's two, Ainsley and Grayson, a few weeks ago, and they were coming to my house. They love to come to my house, and my sister, who doesn't have grandchildren yet, thinks I'm a little over the top, you know, with the kitchen and the Barbie house and the toys and the bunk room that we turned an attic space into. I said, you just wait. If you want them to come to your house, you will have some stuff. <laughs> and you want them to have fun when they're at your house, and you want to be able to play with them when they're at your house because you adore them. You focus on them. You want to spend time with them. And so they were supposed to come to my house. Well, Grayson developed a little bit of a runny nose and kind of a low-grade fever. thought it was connected to teething, but weren't sure. So I was kind of afraid to expose him to Steve because you can't be around them without touching them, hugging on them, them climbing all over you. So I decided to go to their house and stay with them instead. Well, when Bethany broke the news to Ainsley, Ainsley's three, Grayson's not quite two. Ainsley threw herself in the floor and said, it's ruined. It's all ruined (laughs) because... She wanted to come to my house. But I thought immediately, Lord, how many times do we do that? When you don't answer our prayers the way we thought or in the time that we anticipated, and we go, it's ruined, (laughs) it's all ruined. It didn't happen the way I had it pictured in my head. You know, as we grow, we should develop in trust in relationship with the Lord and recognize that when things take a turn, that he is sovereign, he is in control, and we can trust him. Our oldest daughter, Lindsay, and her husband Ryan were looking for a home to move to that had a flatter yard for their children to play in. They're getting older, they're now getting into soccer and all that kind of stuff. So to have a place where they could practice, they live on a really steep hill and the backyard just kind of drops off. So they've been looking for a home. Well, they found one that they just fell in love with. And you know how that is? When you see a house, you like it. It was on, I don't know, two or three acres of land. So it had extra space. The house was a little bit larger than they thought they had needed, but hey. Your family will grow into it. They can have extra people over. The house needed some repairs, um, but they were excited about it. So they put a contract on it contingent on their house selling, and the man gave them a verbal acceptance, basically said, I'd love for your family to have it. I'm willing to wait. Well, then somebody else comes along and gave him a contract that wasn't a contingency, and he took their contract. Well, initially, you're thinking, no, wait a minute. We thought we found our house. Well, this one was almost 20 minutes away from church and school and the things that their kids do. And they're getting into more extracurricular activities. So it's important how far you are from school and church. And they started looking again. So they found a the neighborhood just like three minutes away. There was a house for sale there. They looked at the house. It didn't quite meet their needs. But as the Lord would have it. A person who lived in the neighborhood whose house was not on the market contacted their realtor and said, you know what, I really need to downsize. I'm willing to sell my house if somebody's interested, but I don't want to put it on the market and I don't want to hassle over the price. Here's the price. If you know somebody's interested, just let me know. Well, so they went to look at that house. Guess what? They loved it. They loved it. And so now it is, they closed on it Friday, which is so exciting because now they're going to be three minutes from the church and school and all the things that their family do. And they are so excited about that. Well, do you see the turn in the road? They thought they wanted that first house. And yet it's 20 minutes away. And I told her, I said, as your kids get older, you're going to be going back and forth so much to school and church that you're going to want to be a little bit closer than that. And having kids over and friends after school, all that goes into that. So they were so excited now about this house. But we see how God does that. Sometimes he protects us from ourselves when we're praying about a specific thing, because we may think this is the way we want to things to go and God says, no, wait a minute, I'm closing this door because I'm going to open a better one for you. Besides that, when God places us in a neighborhood, it's never even just about us. I mean, there are people he wants you to befriend. There are people he wants you to share the gospel with. There are neighbors that he wants you to get to know because they're going to impact you and your family and you're going to be there for them as well. So there's always much more to every decision we make than we are aware of most of the time. So we have to trust him. And see him in secret and place our affections on him. So he tells us, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a play actor. Don't just pray in front of people. Pray privately. Spend time with the Father. Do it not for man's acclaim. But what does he say? Your Father who's in secret will see you and he will reward you. Do it for the reward of the Father. And for the intimacy of the relationship that he is offering. Go to that secret place and don't use meaningless repetition. You don't have to pray a certain way. It doesn't have to be beautiful. And I know all of us have heard some people who are just articulate. And when they pray, you just feel like you're lifted into the heavenlies because their language is beautiful and lofty. In fact, Steve has been reading this year in his devotional time, Morning and Evening by uh, Charles Spurgeon, and his language is lofty and beautiful. He has a way with words that just captures your heart and is able to express something with such meaning that you go, oh, yes, that's it. That's exactly the way I would have said it if I could speak like that. And Steve read something to me last night, and he said, who talks like this anymore? Like, who writes like this anymore? It's so beautiful. That is not what God is listening to. If we didn't get anything out of the Beatitudes, we know that. He's looking at our heart. He's wanting our heart's affection to be set upon him, for our hearts to be undivided in devotion to him. And if our hearts are focused on him, he is listening and looking at our heart, not just our words. So don't think you have to pray a certain way or you have to repeat it so many times. That is not what God's looking at. He's looking at a heart full of love and faith that focuses on him, and trusts him ultimately. So now that we know how we're not to pray, let's look at the model that Christ gave us. Let's pick back up in verse 9. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then he gives some commentary on one of the things we prayed. He says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Pretty serious. So we begin by saying, hallowed be thy name. Now, to hallow something means to revere it, to honor it, set it apart as sacred. It's a word we don't use much anymore. It's an old English word, but they're really, even most of the modern translations still use the word hallowed when translating the Lord's Prayer because there's not an English word that's really equivalent. It is to set above everything else. His name is preeminent. It is above all. It is holy. So we are to hallow his name. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, The Sermon on the Mount, said there is a sense in which we should take off our shoes whenever we use the name. You know, the Jews would not even pronounce the name, and we pronounce it Yahweh just because we don't really know how else to pronounce it. They wouldn't even put put um, vowels in. They just used the consonants. They wouldn't say the name out loud because his name was so hallowed, so holy and other that they wouldn't even speak his name. Now, I've given you a list of some of the names of God as they are given to us in scripture. Elohim is God Almighty. It's the creator God that's given to us in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 2 uh, verse 4, we're actually first given Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, our God, Yahweh, Elohim, in Genesis 2, verse 4, um, before it's actually revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus, where the God reveals to him, I am that I am, is sending you. When they ask you who's sending you, I am, the God who is, the self-existent one. And when you're reading your Bible, it'll be in all caps, all caps, L-O-R-D. That is the name for Yahweh or Jehovah. They're the same name. Then I've given you the compound names that have been given to us as God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. He begins and he just rolls out his names, revealing to us his character, who he is. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. He is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner who goes before us and is over us. He is Jehovah Shalom. He is the Lord, our peace. He is Jehovah Ra. He is the Lord, our shepherd. He is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. He is Jehovah Shema, the Lord who is present. There are seven of them. I would encourage you to take a name a day this next week. And when you hallow his name, if you use the Lord's prayer as just an outline for walking through your personal prayer time, it's so important that we pause first and hallow his name. Recognize he is the God who is in heaven. He is the exalted one. It prevents us from rushing into his presence. It causes us to pause and prepare our hearts to be in the presence of this holy one. So Jesus is saying... The most unmistakable way to tell that your Christianity is real, not just external, is to look at your secret prayer life. Do you praise God in secret? Do you enjoy him? Do you hallow his name? Because what we do in secret reveals what we value. So we need to go to praise before petition, before confession. First, because praise is supposed to frame the others. It's to dominate and saturate the others. All the problems we're having relating to the world or ourselves are really problems of adoration. If you don't hallow God, the problems will show up in petition and confession. Well, then we move from our Father. Let's just pause right there, too, on our Father. The fact that we can call this one whose name is hallowed and is so far above all others Father Abba because of what Christ has done for us, we're in the midst of Holy Week. How awesome that we can reflect on the Lord's Prayer that Christ has given us, access to the Father because of Easter, because of his willingness to go to the cross, to die, be buried, and be raised from the dead, conquering sin, hell, and the death for us so that God can be our Father but it also means that if he is my father, he is also the father of all who call on him in Christ. So it doesn't matter what nation you live in, what language you speak, what color your skin is. If you call on God as father, you are my sister or my brother. And if you are in the family, I embrace you I love you, I accept you, and I am excited to get to know you and learn from you because God has gifted us and placed us in the body so that we edify and build up one another. And if you're not in the family, I invite you in through Jesus Christ. That's how we love our neighbor, as we love ourselves. It is to reach out in love and share the gospel. and Invite everybody to be able to know God as their father and to learn to hallow his name, and then to submit before him and to say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You notice there's a logical order, a progression in these petitions. They follow one another by a kind of inevitable divine necessity, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. I want you to take your workbooks, if you have them, and open to page 152. Because we're asking that God's kingdom would come and his perfect will would be done. And we talked about this week the world's narrative and kingdom narratives and how we have to tell the right story. (laughs) We have to know what the truth is. And we gave you a couple of false worldly narratives and then countered them with the kingdom narrative. One, I am alone. Well, you're actually never alone. (laughs) Jesus has said he will never leave you nor forsake you. What about the feeling that I must be in control at all times? I I must be in charge. That's completely false. We know we're not in charge of anything, but Jesus is. And God the Father is good. And everything he does is good. And we can trust him. We can place our trust in him because he is in control. And if we will take those false narratives, those lies and replace them with what is true, and start setting our mind on things above, we will then have the kingdom narrative, the narrative of God's kingdom that we're praying will come from heaven to earth. And it literally is in prayer that God's will comes from heaven to earth. We don't truly understand prayer, except that it is the vehicle that God has chosen through which his will comes from heaven to earth. That's why we pray. So we get in on what he is doing. Prayer changes things, but it also first and primarily changes us it gets us in line with his will and that's what we're doing when we call him father we recognize his holiness we hallow his name and we submit to his perfect will we are lining our will up with his will so that then we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us because we're asking according to the will and the word of God I pointed out a woman, Harriet Tubman, and if you've not read a biography on her, the one that I actually shared a quote from is called Bound for the Promised Land, and I shared this week, I actually wrote the week study, that when my girls were in town one night and we got a bunch of the the babies to bed, we watched the movie Harriet. It's fabulous, and they actually did a really good job portraying her faith in the Lord and how God spoke to her and directed her, and literally what she was able to accomplish is... It's miraculous, it is absolutely miraculous. But even after personally rescuing over 70 former slaves, she eventually became the first American woman ever to lead an armed raid into enemy territory. It was through serving in this capacity that she saw over 700 slaves come to freedom. And in 1896, Tubman purchased 25 acres to establish a home and hospital for indigent, aged, and sick African-Americans. A woman who walked by faith a woman who saw injustice and could not be silent, could not be apathetic, could not be complacent. Do you know why? Because of her great faith, because she had an intimate prayer life. She was in line with the will and the heart of the Father, and God commissioned her. He called her, and because he called her, she stepped out in faith and she believed. In fact, I love the quote um, at the bottom because it says, Um, One of the people said, it never seemed to strike her at all as strange or mysterious. Her prayer was the prayer of faith, and she expected an answer. (laughs) She knew when she prayed, God would answer, and she was listening and waiting for that answer, and consequently, God was able to trust her and to use her mightily. And so part of what I am praying is that God will raise up spiritual Harriet Tubmans who will be I mean focused and excited and passionate about sharing the gospel and seeing people set free from the slavery of sin and come into the life of freedom and wholeness that we have because we're in Christ Jesus, but then to go after others and to see them come to Christ and then to meet tangible needs, to minister to the least of these. That's exactly what Harriet did, and it's exactly what Jesus Christ has called all of us to Lay down the burden that you believe you know what's best. Lay that burden down and trust that your heavenly Father not only knows what's best, but has your best at heart. And if you will surrender to that as you surrender to his will, he will call you and he will do in you and through you, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could begin to ask or imagine. Well, we move from that after we've aligned our hearts with the Father into petition. And he says, then you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Um, N.T. Wright said, God not only wants what's best for us by asking us to focus first on him, he shows he cares about our daily struggles by focusing on our daily needs. We are now given the green light to give attention to ourselves when we pray. And it goes on in chapter 6 to say, but seek first His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, food and drink and clothing, will be added unto you. We can lift those petitions to him, but then we leave them with him because when we're seeking first his kingdom, that is our father's job to provide those things. As his child, we don't have a care or a worry in the world. We simply desire to obey him and to fulfill his purpose and his plan. We move from that into confession. And it tells us, and forgive us of our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Ouch. <laughs> do I really want to be forgiven as I forgive others? That's exactly what he's saying here. And that's the portion he went on to give commentary on in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Wow. Wow. That's a tough one for a lot of us because there are some of you who have a very deep wound, possibly abuse, betrayal, abandonment, rejection. But I can tell you, whatever it is, is not worth holding on to. Take that person, that incident, off your hook and hand it to your father who loves you When I mentioned my children and my grandchildren, you know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give what is good to those who ask him? He's perfect. I am evil and fallen, and I have a sin nature. And I loved my children, and I would have done anything I had to do to make sure they had everything they needed, that they didn't worry about where their next meal would come from, or that they had the things they needed for school. I would do it and I feel the same way about my grandchildren. It wouldn't matter what I have to do, and boy, you better not cross one of them. <laughs> you want to see the mama bear come out, right? Um, d- don't cross one of our loved ones. That's that's what he's saying here. Is you've got to. Step back, take your hands off, and give that person, that situation, that wound to the Father because he loves you more than you can imagine. And he will fight for you. That's one of the reasons I love Mary of Bethany so much. We see her at Jesus' feet the three times she is specifically discussed in Scripture. And all three times she's at her feet, two times people are complaining about her. She doesn't have to say a word. Jesus comes to her defense. What did God say? You don't have to seek your own revenge. Leave vengeance to me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You can be certain the God of all the earth, the righteous one, will do what is right. But it's in his eyes, not in mine. And when I roll that burden over onto him, suddenly I'm set free. And I'm no longer dealing with bitterness and opening up that old wound again and reliving it over and over. Because not only is he able to give me the power to choose forgiveness, he also, through his Holy Spirit, as I release that to him, will come in and bind up my heart and heal those wounded places. He's the only one who can do that. And we move from that choosing forgiveness as an act of our will, Because none of us ever feels like choosing forgiveness, but we choose it out of obedience. And when we do, as we're going to look at in a moment, some of these spirals, whether we're spiraling down or up, it all depends on what we do with God's word. If we choose to obey it, and I can promise you from personal experience, if we will choose forgiveness, and sometimes it's moment by moment, day by day, until suddenly we realize one day it doesn't hurt like it once did. I've been able to release it. I haven't thought about it because God is coming in and he's bringing healing. And that there's somebody here today, probably more than one somebody's or somebody listening today that you need today to choose forgiveness. Just tell the father, I don't feel like it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But about obedience to you and because I want to be forgiven, I choose forgiveness. And if you will choose forgiveness and trust the father, I promise you this, Your feelings will eventually line up. The Lord will come in and he will bring healing as only he can. And we move from forgiveness then into spiritual warfare because we're not going to be able to stand against the enemy as long as we've got ground in our own life. We've given the enemy topaz or ground in our lives to come in and wreak havoc. That's why we've got to confess. We've got to be clean. And it's daily confession. It's daily choosing forgiveness. And then we move into and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Since Jesus' disciples cannot completely escape temptation in this life, Jesus taught them to pray not only for protection from temptation, but for protection in temptation. But deliver us from the evil one is literally how it can be translated. It's one petition with two elements. Each cause helps in interpreting the other. Lord, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the influence of the evil one. God always provides a way of escape He is never going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able because he's given us the Holy Spirit who enables us to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Now I want you to turn in your workbook to page 161 and 162. It's where we were looking at the spirals. And we know that it begins with a thought and then we either spiral down or spiral up based on what we do with that thought. And sometimes those thoughts don't originate with us. Many times they're fiery darts of the enemy or they're a wounded place we haven't let go of, unforgiveness that comes back to the surface. It can be a a worldly desire that we have, that the enemy is using to get us focused on so that our, our adoration is of that thing that we think we need rather than on Christ, and we get our perspective off. And then the enemy wreaks havoc with our thoughts, and we find ourselves in that dark place of spiraling downward, now, think about it just a moment, now I want you to ask yourself, even over just the last couple of days, are you spiraling up into transformation, or are you allowing the fiery darts of the evil one to send you downward into darkness, discouragement, and despair? As we look at this, I want us to walk through. Okay, let's start at the top of page 160, and we're looking at the downward spiral. So, let's just say our errant thought is, I can't forgive. I'm nursing a hurt. So what will my emotion be? Anger, betrayal, reliving the incident over and over, which leads to that fixation on the thought and emotions. And then what's my sinful reaction going to be? Anger primarily directed at that person or that incident, but isn't it interesting how that anger spills over onto everybody else around us? the people we love most will be the ones who experience that anger and it really most of the time had nothing to do with them. And then what happens? The relationship is chipped away or destroyed and it impacts other relationships around me as well. Or think of another one. For instance, in the midst of founding Arise to Read, I can remember waking up some mornings thinking, I am in so far over my head. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm not a business person. I can't write grants. I can't, I can't, I can't. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> and so if I do that, what do I do? Then if I don't take that thought captive, What's the next thing? The emotion that hits me is anxiety. And I start to feel overwhelmed. And then what happens? Then I have a barrage of other thoughts that follow telling me how inadequate I am and how I am in over my head. And this isn't going to work. And it's going to be a failure. And I'm not going to be able to provide for the employees. And so what's the sinful reaction? Typically, I would pull back then. If I'm anxious or fearful about something, I'm not going to step out in faith. I'm going to pull back I'm not going to obey the Lord. I'm not going to do what it is he's calling me to do because I'm saying I can't do it as if I can do anything because apart from him, I can do nothing. I know that from John 15. But if I listen to the lie, if I listen to the narrative of the world and of the enemy and I begin to believe it, I start that downward spiral. And then what does it do? It quenches the flow of the Holy Spirit. And I'm unable to hear the voice of God because I'm not walking by faith. And it's impossible to please God without faith. So I'm not pleasing the Lord and I'm leaving myself in bondage. So let's jump down to, okay, let's stop the thought. All right, so if that thought comes, replace it. You know, the one I use so often is fear because that was the one that had me in its grips for so many years. And I'd written out in here, you know, the errant thought is fear, anxiety. Maybe let's just go back to my thing with the Rise to Read. You know, the fear and the anxiety of not being able to do it, of being a failure, of not being able to do all that needs to be done to provide, to find donors, to get volunteers trained and into the schools— if you think about all the details, you can get overwhelmed. But my life first is Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able, he's able. I don't have to be because he is, he's able. And if he calls me, he will do it. So what do I do the moment I have that anxious thought? I say, I refuse that thought. I take it captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And I say, no, God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, 2 Timothy 1.7. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I start speaking the truth to refute the lie. And then I choose a behavior. God, I'm going to obey you. I don't care what my errant thoughts are. Feelings are doing, they're flailing around out here all over the place. I'm not going to listen to my emotions. I'm going to choose to obey you. This is what is true, and I will take the next step of obedience, trusting that you are more than able. And I, I can tell you, eventually those feelings that are flailing around out here start lining up as you choose God's truth over your emotions, over the lie, and you speak, keep speaking the truth. Remember what we said, every time the enemy hits you with what if, you hit him with what is. It is written. That's how we respond to all the what ifs the enemy hits us with. And so when I do that and I take that thought captive I replace it with truth, my emotions eventually come in and then I experience his life in peace. That's exactly what Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Turn them into prayer. And then the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard our heart, our emotions, and our mind, our thoughts in Christ Jesus. It literally builds a fortress around our emotions and around our minds. We have his peace, his life. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And then there's transformation. We're transformed and our faith is boosted because we have seen God come through again. We've seen his ability over and over because we choose to place our faith in him. Remember what the biographer said about Harriet? People were so amazed because she prayed and expected an answer. Do you know why? She was doing God's work. She'd been called by him. And if God calls us, and we know he's called us to take the gospel to the nations. We know he's called us to make disciples of all the nations. We know we're to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. We know we're to adore him above all. If we will do what we know to do. Ladies, it's simple. Not easy, but it's simple. It's not complicated. We complicate things. It is really simple, but it will require a struggle. Because we have to crucify our flesh. We have to take our flesh to the cross so that it dies, so that Christ's resurrected life comes forth from our innermost being. And he will bring forth literally rivers of living water that will quench us and every person that it splashes on. Then we become the salt and the light that we talked about in Matthew chapter 5. Then our light shines before men in such a way that they see our good works and they glorify our Father who is in heaven. And that is our desire, to so hallow his name, to so trust him and adore him that others are drawn to Jesus because of our lives. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I want to encourage you, if you didn't work through the spirals this week, whatever the lie is, you saw that list of lies that pastor's wives submitted at these retreats for pastor's wives. Now, if the enemy is assaulting these leaders with these lies, he's having a heyday with all of us. He's doing it to everybody. So don't think you're the only one who's ever felt like any of these things. Find your lie, whatever it is, whatever is at the root of the emotion that seems to be driving your life. Go back in your family. What wound did you receive in your childhood? What what lies, what false narrative did the enemy begin to feed you many years ago that you've continued to allow him to speak? You stop it because now you are a daughter of the king. You belong to him. Who can go into the king at 3 o'clock in the morning for a glass of water? His child. His child. You are his. He loves you so much. He sent his darling son into this dark, sinful, broken world to make everything untrue true, to make everything right again. It's what we're about to celebrate this weekend. It's what the Christian life is all about. Don't live it in the flesh. Die to your flesh that the Spirit of God might take over. And He is more than able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can begin to ask or imagine according to His power that lives within you. It's His power, not yours. It never was ours. It is His power living and flowing out of the crucified life that enables us to do those things we could never begin to dream of doing or accomplishing for his glory, for his namesake. And then we close with praise. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We've laid our petitions at his feet and we leave them there trusting that our good heavenly father will do what is best for us. And we leave adoring him which boosts our faith and puts our focus rightly back on Him before we go out into our day. Ian e. Bounds says it's only when the whole heart is gripped with the passion of prayer that the life giving fire descends, for none but the earnest man gets access to the ear of God. Choose Him. Choose Him. Choose to set your heart's affection on him. Adore him above all. And whatever is competing for your attention, for your love, for your adoration, doesn't mean that you have to get a, do away with that thing. It could be a relationship. It could be a dream or a desire. All I'm telling you is, don't give it first place. Don't let it be that thing that can devastate you or make you throw yourself on the floor like Ainsley and say, it's all ruined. It's all ruined. It's never all ruined because we have a God who loves us, who has given us his Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that spoke all of creation into existence, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That Spirit lives within your physical body. There is nothing, nothing he cannot accomplish in you and through you when you surrender to him. So I encourage you this week, if you've not done it before, take the Lord's Prayer as an outline, and just use it to kind of walk through. But be sure to pause and hallow him and adore him and submit to his will before you rush in with all the things you're wanting him to do. It's amazing how adoring him, setting our hearts and minds on him, changes our perspective.